Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. This is Amanda and Kevin, and we're going to have our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars. But honestly, it's mostly about Star Wars. And today is uh, what I'm going to call Star Wars Eve. Tomorrow, we're going to go see The Rise of Skywalker. We're very excited about it. And so let's uh, go back to where it all started, you know, basically in the middle of things with uh, New Hope. Kevin, do you want to give us a little overview of A New Hope and and why it's so important to Star Wars? Sure. So Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, or when it was released, it was just called Star Wars. It really didn't get relabeled until the first re-release. Um, was the first movie in the Star Wars franchise. And it introduces us to sort of all of the characters that carry through and have been around since the very beginning. We meet uh, Luke Skywalker. We meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. We meet Han Solo, Chewbacca. We meet Leia. We meet Darth Vader. Um, and then we meet a few uh, side characters or, or I guess other important characters like C-3PO and R2-D2. But we also get introduced to people like Biggs and Dak and Grand Moff Tarkin. Grand Moff Tarkin. He's actually not a Grand Moff yet. He's just a regular Moff. Just a Moff. Just a Moff. Um, and Admiral Gergerod, which you can never forget from his few minutes sitting around the big, giant, unnecessarily large conference table in the Death Star. She's the guy that got choked? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's also uh, notable that his insignia plate on his uniform has the wrong number of squares. He doesn't actually carry the rank of, uh, of an admiral based on his uniform. That got fixed in later movies. Um, but A New Hope really takes us through sort of the the, the formula that Star Wars movies uh, sort of rely on after that of, of a, about a three-act show. The first act sort of introduces the characters and the problem that they're trying to solve, that problem being defeating the Death Star. Uh, so we get to meet everybody. We sort of get their background. We have a couple of quick little fights and shootouts. We move into the second act, which is escaping from the Death Star. So um, as kind of everybody knows, um, Princess Leia was being held prisoner on the Death Star. The Death Star destroys Alderaan. The, uh, the rest of the heroes are trying to deliver the Death Star plans to Alderaan. They end up getting imprisoned on the Death Star. And so there's a whole big confluence of everything having to do with escaping from the Death Star that culminates in the first real lightsaber battle in all of Star Wars. Uh, between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, resulting in Kenobi's sacrifice and death. And then the third act, after they uh, escape from the Death Star, return to the rebel base on Yavin, is the Battle of Yavin, which is sort of the first big space battle in, in Star Wars. There are a couple little skirmishes that the, the Millennium Falcon has up to that point. But this is the first real serious space battle um, your first view of, of sort of the detailed modeling that Industrial Lights and Magic put together and um, results, of course, in the destruction of the Death Star, um, before which Darth Vader escapes. Tarkin somehow escapes because he, he goes on to live on past that. Um, but um, uh, the, the Death Star is destroyed and the rebels appear victorious, at least temporarily. And then we have the medal ceremony that everybody knows and loves with, with some pretty great music. and the big question of why Chewbacca didn't get a medal. Oh yeah. Why doesn't Chewbacca get a medal? Yeah, it's debatable. It's either because he was too tall and it was too hard to do it. Or there are some who say that Wookiees don't really want that kind of uh, recognition. Medals are really not important to them. Or it's possible that they just chose not to give a, uh, a medal to the non-human, which is possibly slightly speciesist. Not really. Clear. Slightly. Anyway. 
So one of the things um, you mentioned in the beginning where we get introduced to everyone, we I think it's not really a character, but it really is, is the Force. We get introduced to the Force. That's we learn point. that it's this ancient religion. Um, some of the folks sitting around the conference table, as I previously mentioned, uh, you know, one guy got choked. They're making fun of Darth Vader's religion, which is, or they're, calling it a religion, but his way of life and his belief in the force. Um, and, and the force brings balance. The force is in everything. The force is the light. It is the dark. It is all living things. It is many things. And we we get introduced to it at the beginning. And it starts with Vader, where they're making fun of him. And then we get the contrast to that with Obi-Wan um, speaking with Luke. And we, we get talked taught about what the force is like when you're a Jedi and Luke's only heard about it on Tatooine through probably rumors and, you know, legend, but he doesn't really understand what it is, but he's applied some kind of uh, pedestal to Jedi. So we got both sides of the force. We got people making fun of it. We've got some kind of amazing Jedi that is part of the force, but we really don't understand it. And so through the introduction phase of the, the film, throughout the rest of the movie, we get bits and pieces of what the Force is. And, I mean, Kevin, when you look at all of that, what's your takeaway? Do you, you want to learn more about the Force? Well, of course you do, right? And and I think one of the most interesting takeaways for me, and something that I really didn't think about until probably years after the first time I saw the movies, was that they talk about the Force as this, they, they talk about it as an ancient religion. And, and you're right, they do kind of make fun of it. They talk about, um, they, they talk about it in this, these terms of this sort of distant past. But the reality is that the Jedi were around. I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi was a Jedi who participated in, you know, the Clone Wars and also was a member of the Jedi at their, at their really at their peak, which was less than a generation before. Um, Darth Vader was also a Jedi at the peak of the Jedi Order. And so it's really kind of a, it's an interesting maybe commentary on how quickly things can change or the, or the power of propaganda that the Jedi are looked on as this like sort of ancient thing of the past, when in fact they're very much the present and one generation before all of those folks. In fact, some of the folks like Tarkin was around during the Clone Wars and he was around during the height of the Jedi. And so, um, I find I found that kind of interesting. But as far as being introduced to the Force, yeah, absolutely. This really opens up a lot of questions. It makes you really want to understand what what are the capabilities of Force wielders. What you know, what can the Force do for them? Um, and and it's something that gets developed obviously throughout the rest of of Star Wars canon. We get a very little taste of it. That it appears to somehow allow you to choke people out. It allows you to sense when you're going to be shot at. And it allows you to aim torpedoes without the aid of a computer somehow. And disappear. And disappear somehow when you get sliced in half. Yeah. That, that's about all we learn about the Force. Yeah. 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 So at that point, I would say we finish the movie and we want to learn more about the Force. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. I realized uh, that there's a couple other things that make more sense to talk about. Let's go more into Obi-Wan. I mean, you said he was the last generation of Jedi. Like, that's not really that long ago. We got, you know, 25 years, maybe-ish. 18, 18, right? Luke's, yeah. Luke's 18. He was born on Empire Day. Empire Day is the day that, that Palpatine took on the mantle of Emperor. Um, and it was really, and it was also the day that, 
Order 66 was executed, which which killed most of the Jedi Order. So, you know, it's 18 years since the fall of the Jedi, the rise of the Emperor, um, and since Obi-Wan Kenobi went into uh, exile on Tatooine. Yeah, we, we really don't have a lot of time here. So, right. um, you know, I, I think it begs the question. So we're, we're on Tatooine. We've got Luke and his uncle going and buying a couple of droids from the Jawas. And they they take home R2-D2 and C-3PO. And we get introduced to, at the time when I was watching it as a little kid, I didn't even realize that there were people inside there. So, you know, props to those actors. That, that's incredible and, and challenging and difficult because it certainly didn't look comfortable. But, um, you know, I, I think that's really an interesting thing that we don't see anymore. Um, because we've got CGI for everything, but that's kind of a really cool thing to point out. But so Luke gets introduced to Obi-Wan because he has to go chasing after his droids. They, mm-hmm. They've up and left him. Well, actually, I take it back. R2's up and left him. And so he and 3PO get in a speeder and they go driving through the desert. And this is something that we, we looked at and we were trying to figure it out because Luke says, hey, you know, punch it. And we're like, what are you talking? Why are you narrating driving the speeder? And then we realize that he puts 3PO in the driver's seat. Yeah. Would you do that, Kevin? Uh, I mean, knowing C3PO after several movies, probably not. I would guess that it's probably not uncommon to have a droid do something like simple and menial, like driving your speeder. Right. And so especially um, it looks like Luke was looking through his binoculars and looking at sensors and trying to find R2-D2. So it doesn't seem all that unreasonable to, to make the droid drive the car um, in, you know, and I think that's fine. I do think it's interesting that after 3PO gets smashed to pieces and he realizes kind of what that droid's personality is, Luke seems to be driving himself on the way back. That is correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think he uh, overestimates 3PO's capabilities at the beginning and then yeah. immediately uh, or shortly thereafter learns uh, the better ways to use him is more of a protocol droid. Yes. Um. So, so Obi-Wan is introduced to Luke. We find the droids. Um, he scares away the sand people and he says that they have to hurry. And Luke explains that these droids are the property of an Obi-Wan Kenobi to which he's like, is this you Ben Kenobi? You know, do you know him? Is he related to you? And he said, well, he's me. I'm Obi-Wan. And so at that point, you know, this light goes on in uh, Luke's head, but Obi-Wan says, I never owned any droids. And we were wondering why would he say he didn't know these droids? Well, he doesn't say he doesn't know them. Yeah. All he says is that he's never owned droids. And, you know, we've watched uh, together, we've watched all of the movies, we've watched Clone Wars, uh, the TV show, we've watched a lot of media about this. And it turns out that throughout all of it, Obi-Wan Kenobi is really never very trustful of droids, and he never does personally own any. He um, he has some droids that fly with him on spaceships, um, he uses droids, but uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 were always the property of uh, Anakin Skywalker, but were never really the property of Obi-Wan Kenobi. He seems to act like he doesn't recognize them. And I think that can be explained a couple different ways. In one way, C-3PO is a fairly generic looking protocol droid. So without actually hearing his name designation 
And since C-3PO's memory has been wiped many, many times, there's no sort of mutual recognition. So I could see him sort of overlooking overlooking that. He does refer to R2-D2 as my little friend. And so is it sort of a coy acknowledgement that he knows R2-D2? Or is it just, you know, that he really never paid a lot of attention to droids. He never really treated them the same as, as the way that other people treated droids. So maybe he just looked past them, right? Uh, from a, you know, sort of from a filmmaking standpoint, I'm not sure that all of this had been thought through at the time. So maybe it's just a, just a gap in the writing. Um, but you could really, you could write this back to his personality and the way that he approaches things. It also seems like he's not at that point willing to be entirely forthcoming with Luke about everything that he knows. Would you say he lies to Luke? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he definitely lied to Luke. Why he lies to Luke is a little bit less clear. Do you think it's because if he told Luke the whole truth and nothing but the truth from the beginning, that Luke would have said, screw this, I'm taking my droids, going back in the speeder and going home? I'm, maybe. Um, I, I think if he, I think if Luke knew the whole truth, I think it was more likely that he was going to be, that he was going to take that as like a uh, recognition that his father is still alive and he wanted to go find his father and that there was a big risk that in trying to do that, that he would be seduced to the dark side. If you, I mean, you can imagine what if innocent farm boy Luke, who has no knowledge of the force, went on a quest instead of to help the rebellion to find this Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker, who was indeed his father, and encountered him, immediately Vader would bring him would would make him his apprentice would start to turn him to the dark side would train him in his version of the force and probably try to use him to overthrow the emperor which eventually he does once he finds out his identity right imagine if luke didn't have the time training with obi-wan and yoda before that encounter he would have almost certainly done that oh definitely right? and so i think that i think that obi-wan's motivation was really that he'd been watching out for this kid for for 18 years he wanted to make sure that he was going to be appropriately trained and that he was going to be ready when he finally encountered his father. And so I think that the lies were there to prevent Luke from doing anything rash. Whether it was the right thing to do or not is up still up for debate, but I think that was probably his motivation. And I, I think you used the right word, rash. Like Luke at the beginning of the movie, here's this young guy working the farm with his aunt and uncle and he's complaining because all of his friends have gone off to the academy we, we were trying to figure out exactly what academy this is because they're in you know the outer rim like they're kind of off the empire's radar but kind of not like did his friends go to like join the rebel force or did they go to learn how to be fighters for the imperial force or is there some other miscellaneous college academy that we don't know about? Yeah, I feel like I saw a deleted scene where he was talking to Biggs or something and that they actually went to the imperial academy. But during their trading, they met with rebel agents and used that to defect to the rebellion. They really didn't want to be members of the empire, but also they wanted to get the hell out of Tatooine. And so that was really their only path off the planet. That, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so Luke's this whiny guy. He's very prone to making, you know, just emotionally charged decisions that here's this guy who's a hermit, Ben Kenobi, a.k.a. Obi-Wan, is watching him from the, like, sand dunes to make sure that he doesn't go off with his friends. He's stuck on the planet. He can be trained in some very distant remote way. Um, 
you know, how Obi-Wan knew to just kind of sit it out and wait until the time would present itself is, you know, again, a reliance on the force, I think. But, you know, he, he just kind of patiently waited for Luke to yeah. come to him. Yep. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, I'm very excited for an upcoming show that, that they're going to launch, I think, next year. Um, there is an Obi-Wan Kenobi show launching at Disney Plus that'll sort of help and, and there, it's not clear yet what it's going to be, but I I really hope that it starts to fill in some of the gaps of what was Kenobi up to between the Clone Wars and um and you know raising in and Luke's rise with the Force. Live action or cartoon? Live action. Ewan McGregor is confirmed. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting yeah, news. Yeah, that All is right. exciting. Okay, B- back to uh, A New Hope. Yeah. So we also meet uh, Princess Leia. She's a princess. She's a Jedi. She's a senator. Or she's not really a Jedi. She's strong with the Force. Um, but she's a princess. She's a general. She's a senator. And we we also learn, you know, down the road that she's Force-sensitive in, in some way. Because when um, Vader is trying to torture her, she's able to resist his torture methods. Yeah. And, I mean, like, you probably need to be strong with the force to be able to do that. That, that machine looked really torturous. Yeah. And it's, you know, one interesting thing. And and again, I, you know, uh, there, there are some sort of uh, screenwriting explanations for this. And then there are some in universe explanations for this, but it is sort of surprising that he would mind probe her and not be able to figure out that he, that she is his daughter, because at this point, that is both true, but he doesn't know it. And in fact, never, he, well, he doesn't find out until the fight with Luke Skywalker on the second Death Star in front of the Emperor that he has a twin sister and who it is. And so you would think that if he spent time personally torturing her and mind probing her, that he would run into something. Now, obviously, she doesn't know who her natural parents are, but, um, and, and I, I mean, apparently this means that the deception that uh, Padme never had her children worked very well, very late into, into Vader's life. Agreed. Agreed. Um, So we learn about Leia. We then see uh, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo go to the Death Star to go rescue her. Mm -hmm. Um, What we learn is she doesn't really need to be rescued. No. When she, she asks why they're there, they say they're there to rescue her and she pretty much mocks them. Yeah. She yeah. basically needed somebody to open the door and then she kind of took it from there. She really did. Um, and one of the things that we were uh, looking at though, was that in order to go open said door, they had to, Luke and Han had to impersonate a couple of stormtroopers. So, you know, they, Hit a couple guys over the head, took their costumes, and walked around the joint like they were stormtroopers. And they used Chewbacca as their fake prisoner that they were moving to a different cell block. Yeah. They they get into a room and, and they realize at that point it's guns blazing. Uh, Luke starts killing people. Yeah. So he's been growing up on Tatooine for his 18 years. Had he previously been killing people? He's very comfortable in that role. Yeah, I, and I had to watch that scene three times because you know they're in as they walk off the the turbo lift. Basically, um, Luke and Han are both dressed as stormtroopers. They have Chewbacca sort of in manacles that are not really fully closed, and they only have two blaster rifles with them. And as they let they let Chewbacca loose. One of them hands him a blaster and he starts shooting and one of the guys in stormtrooper armor starts shooting 
And I always assumed that that was Han and Chewie and that Luke was sort of hanging back. But when you actually watch it play all the way out, it turns out that Luke was the one just blowing people away, which really, yeah, it is kind of surprising, first of all, that Han would would give over his his weapon to, to Chewbacca. But secondly, that Luke is very comfortable just shooting these, you know, and I mean, these other guys are armed, so it's not an entirely unfair fight, but um, he's shooting these guys. The only evidence we have that he's done anything like this is that apparently he used to shoot womp, womp rats, which are six foot lizards, and he seemed fairly comfortable just blasting those guys away in his T-16 back home. Um, but yeah, it seemed like a, a, a really interesting point where he does this and he really just doesn't seem to reflect on it at all after that. I mean, I know there's a lot going on and he's escaping from the Death Star, but most people after the first time they shoot a guy in the chest kind of take a minute, take a beat and say, huh, I just killed like four people. He doesn't seem to notice. <laughs> Let's clarify. You've not killed anyone. I've not killed anyone. Yeah, but yeah. we're pretty sure if we needed to, we'd probably think about it and reflect I would. It. I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, yeah, maybe it's something. Maybe we're overthinking it, but he bounces back from his first yeah. few professional kills real fast. Absolutely. Um, And then subsequently when he, uh, you know, blows up the Death Star using the Force, um, how many people did he kill? I, I I forgot. I've looked this up before, but it was there are at least a million people on the Death Star. I mean, it's the it is if you imagine it's the size of a small moon and it's like populated through and through, right? It's got it's got decks of people of of you know soldiers and stormtroopers and other you know engineers and technicians. And there are, you know, he probably kills about a million people. And again, that's something that really nobody ever addresses. When I read the um the the books that are now legends canon there are a couple times where it's come up where people are sort of criticizing darth vader or criticizing various things and they point out that darth vader could be the the number one mass murderer of all time but luke skywalker in terms of just straight up body count could easily be number two yeah i i would agree with that um you know and, and the other thing is is that is the the shooting of the Death Star and the destruction of all the lives there to balance the lives lost on Alderaan. You know, does that bring everything into balance? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like two kills equals a unkill. So <laughs> I agree, but is this some kind of balancing side of things that you have one planet destroyed and you have the thing that destroyed that planet destroyed? I mean, there's probably some some symbolic symmetry there, but I think that it's just really like it's a real realities of war thing. I mean, the the number of the number of ships and, and other people that, that are killed throughout the, the whole the whole battle of Yavin and, and you know later when we talk about the Battle of Endor even more, um, is uh is it's it's a pretty high body count for any war. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and then I, I guess the other thing is, is that we possibly get introduced to Leia as a love interest. Is she Luke's love interest? Is she Han's love interest? Is she America's sweetheart and we all fall in love with her on the screen? Who is she and what do we want her to be? Yeah, she's also, you know, she sort of does a little hair pulling on Chewbacca there too. So you never know what she's into. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like the setup is that like the setup at this point is that she and Luke are sort of your traditional. He's sort of the innocent farm boy. She's the worldly woman kind of kind of relationship. And then she and Han have this sort of antagonistic, uh, you know, like second grade pigtails pulling sort of relationship going on. And I think like, you know, just based on the based on the musical cues and and some of the, you know, kiss for luck kind of things, 
the 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 setup I think from a you know from a storytelling perspective is that Luke's the obvious love interest, but the but Han's the one that you're that you're really supposed to root for. And I guess in the end that works out just fine. Yeah. I mean, Han's the, he's a space pirate. He's the guy smuggling stuff. He's the guy who's doing this because it's a job. That That's what we learn about him. He, he's the bad guy that girls are going to fall in love with. And, you know, I, I think as you watch the, the next movie, you know, you as a girl who's into guys, particularly Kevin, um, you know, that, that's you identify, you go, oh, I, I can understand that. Yes, that, that's what you want to see. Um, you know, learning that Han wasn't the guy shooting all of those, uh, Imperial guards is a little interesting. And then, um, you know, kind of bringing us to the re-releases and the changes that, uh, Lucas made from the original, um, Han was sitting in the cantina and, and he's supposed to shoot and he, he does, but not first. Yeah. So, so he's less of a bad guy. Well, yeah, and and this is one that I think there have been six different releases of what is now called Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope, um, and each time the uh, the scene with Han and Greedo has changed. In the in the very first cinematic release, yeah, Han was the only one who fired a shot. This is the scene in the in the cantina where um, you know Han and Chewbacca have already made a deal with Luke and Obi Wan. Chewbacca, Luke, and Obi Wan have all left the scene. They're going to going about their business. And Greedo, who's a, a very bad bounty hunter, bad not like in the e- not not bad as an evil, bad as in bad at his job. Yeah, he's a very incompetent bounty hunter. Um, holds Han at gunpoint, and while Han is is talking with him, he surreptitiously pulls his blaster out of his holster and shoots Greedo in the in the chest, killing him. And in the original instance of this scene, you know Han gets a shot off before Greedo even knows what's happening in the, uh, in the first theatrical re-release Greedo gets a shot off and misses Han, which is pretty amazing since they're sitting across the table from each other. And then Han shoots him, him second. There's actually in the first special edition, the, the time between those two shots gives Han Solo the opportunity to think about whether or not he should shoot Greedo. And then he still shoots him, which made it tried to build a sort of self-defense case and then going forward into some of the more recent versions it's back to han shooting first or han shooting alone and in this very last disney plus release for some reason greedo screams out some word before he takes a shot which muddies the whole thing up and i think each time that's changed it has it's changed the 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 sort of what's the perception of of han solo the original perception is that He's sort of a, a amoral or at least a low morality guy who's willing to kill another guy to save his own life. He's morally flexible. Yeah. That, that's how we're introduced to Han or and, what we're supposed to think. Yeah. And trying to make him into, you know, he shot a guy out of self-defense is, I think, a little bit of a, a little bit of a washing of his character that isn't really necessary. And that's been the argument since since that that's happened. And there are tons of, you know. There are arguments uh, what would be called Twitter wars today, except that they happened before Twitter existed um, ab- about this very thing. I, you know, in the end, I think there's more. Of, it's more of a big deal made made about it about it anyway. Greedo was holding him at gunpoint, so I feel like basically anything is. It's not a cold blooded murder. It's a self defense murder, no matter how you how you how you set it up. 
Yeah, and, and Han is not a good guy. He becomes a good guy, but he doesn't start out that way. Because you don't have bounty hunters after you if you're fundamentally good. Yeah. He's got this, you know, smuggling debt that he owes to Jabba. Um, and it's just, you know, if he was on this side of the law the entire time, if he was ethically um, an A-plus student, then none of this would have ever even come into play. He wouldn't have been hanging around in the cantina. He wouldn't have been dodging Jabba, and he wouldn't have been looking for... He just wouldn't have been the guy holding a gun ready to shoot someone in self-defense. Probably not, yeah. although I think that there's probably a debate to be had about whether whether or not breaking the law makes you fundamentally good or fundamentally bad, and, the, and the ethics of, of smuggling, if... If you're smuggling against a, a despotic regime, it's never really clear what he's been smuggling. So I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I think that he's actually always a he's more of a good guy from the from the get go than he wants to admit. He wants to be. He kind of wants to be a bad guy, but he just he just really doesn't have it in him to be one. Yeah, and you know we'll, we'll talk about this at another time. But if you watch the prequel Solo, you you can kind of see that they tried to carry that theme into that. That here's a guy that's you know, he's not bad. He's not a hundred percent good. He's morally flexible where he needs to be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we, we get all of that. And, you know, I personally at the end of the film find myself rooting for Han and Leia. I, I think yeah. that there was really no point where I ever truly rooted for Luke and Leia. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's good because we ultimately find out they're brother and sister. So that's good. Um, spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, just kind of to round this all out, you know, what are your favorite moments from a new hope? Um, I mean, one that really gets me is Obi-Wan's speech describing, um, you know, from, from him saying, uh, for over a thousand generation, uh, Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy to his description of the force. And then him passing on, you know, the Skywalker lightsaber to Luke. I think that was a, a, a really awesome scene. And it really, it's it's really interesting that, you know, an entire, I would say almost an entire prequel trilogy and TV show of Clone Wars were derived from this one like minute and a half long speech that he gives. So I think that that was, uh, that that's one of my favorite moments. And then of course, the like the Battle of Yavin um, is is such a huge deal and just just such an epic space battle and also just like um, a, a huge achievement in you know visual effects and, and special effects and it really created an entire generation of uh, you know sort of space epics and then the only other the only other scene is just the iconic opening of the Star Destroyer passing over the camera. And uh, attacking the Tantive Four, and then follow that up from a little bit of a shootout on there, and Darth Vader making his first appearance, and just the the striking change from that you know sort of white um, ship that you know the hallways and the walls are all you know clean white, his white stormtroopers, and then Darth Vader appears and makes it very clear from his first step onto the onto the scene who he is, what he's up to, and 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 you know what his character is. And so I, you know, I mean, it's sort of the beginning, middle, and end of the end of the movie. But th those really stand out to me. I, I agree. Um, there's so many good nuggets in the movie. If you go at the beginning, if you go to the middle, the end, you can find something that can really resonate with you. Um, you know, kind kind of tying this back into you know marriage and and all that good stuff. Um, Kevin, how many times have I told you 
do what you think is right. Yeah. Um, th- there's a line in, in the film um, where Obi-Wan says, you must do what you feel is right, of course. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not, hey, what should I do? It's like, no, you must do what you feel is right. Yeah. And it's about feeling it. It's about, you know, the force is going to guide you if you listen. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, translate that into whatever religion you, you follow. If you do, you, you can, you know, you find themes of that um, in, in religious texts. And yeah. I, I think that it's really interesting and meaningful that not only does Obi-Wan, um, say this but he, he practices it as well yeah um usually guides me away from having the second cookie after dinner yeah 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 um <laughs> it doesn't stop you from the first cookie but it guides Never. you away yeah. from the second, the second cookie. cookie yeah <laughs> um the other part that i really like that um you know i've watched many times and you know it, it didn't resonate with me until after we saw rogue one but I love the scene where they they've escaped the Death Star. They've brought Leia back, um, and she's got the plans to destroy the Death Star. And they're what are they in like a cave or something? It's they're some kind in, of rebel base. Yeah, it's actually in the uh, the base of a temple um, on Yavin Four that was uh, actually originally built for a um, Dark Lord of the Sith named Exar Kun. Uh, by a race thousands of years in the in in the past, um, but yeah, they're basically in this big ziggurat temple. Yeah, and you see all these people that are part of the rebellion, and you see you get introduced to some leaders. And one of the comments that's made is that this came as no small sacrifice, and it's like, well, you know, you you saw the beginning of the movie and you saw like six guys get blown up and one guy get strangled by Vader or whatever. But you're like, and I guess Leia got tortured, but you don't like, you're like, Oh, what? That's the sacrifice. Like six guys. Um, but then when, I mean, the body count in rogue one is epic. Yeah. Um, so when you realize like what they went through in that, that still ultimately resulted in, Alderaan getting completely blown apart. So, you know, millions upon millions of people. And then the life lost on the Death Star as well. Like, small sacrifice is an understatement. So that kind of, you know, starts making me think throughout all of this, like, there, there's there's stuff that happens in war that, you know, we, we can't possibly begin to fathom and how these decisions get made. And, you know, on the surface, you can watch this movie and be like, okay, this is, you know, a nice two hours of excitement and fighting and, you know, magic and, and space. But, you know, when, when you start thinking about how it applies to experiences throughout our history or if you should have the other cookie or not, like there's, you know, there's applications and um, experiences and just triggers really mm-hmm. uh, as to you know what what all you're looking at and it's a lot more significant than just you know two hours of excitement yeah so kevin when you finished watching a new hope and you went in to watch empire what what were you looking forward to to see what what was left undone for you that you couldn't wait to see an empire well i i mean it's interesting because A New Hope is a pretty complete movie on its own, right? So it's one of those where it really doesn't, in a way, it doesn't beg for a sequel and it doesn't leave a lot. But I wanted to see 
more of the force, more of this whole Jedi thing. What is it, you know, what can you really do? What, what are these, you know, what are these lightsabers? What is fighting with them really more like, um, want to see more spaceships, want to meet more creatures. Um, yeah, I, I think those are all the things I, I, I look for. I would, I would look for in the next movie. And I think empire really delivers on that. One of the things I was looking for was destroying the bad guy. The bad guy is uh, Darth Vader. Yeah. Well, again, spoiler alert, doesn't get destroyed. And also, not the baddest guy. Yeah. So, it you know. It turns out there's a worse guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, for me, that that was kind of what I was looking for when I watched Empire. And I didn't get that. So, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, here we are, Star Wars Eve. Yep. And I guess one last shout out that I would give on uh, on a new hope if uh, I don't have a link or anything, but if you uh, if you look on on YouTube, there are some folks who put together a re envisioning of the lightsaber battle between Obi Wan and Darth Vader, made after all of the other media that that we've had has been released, and has some really awesome callbacks to things from the prequels and things from TV shows. Updated, um, you know the the way that they orchestrated that fight was was sort of archaic and and certainly lightsaber combat has come a long way as uh, as things came out and it's a it's a really interesting uh re-look at how that fight could go with the you know the exposition of the relationship between obi-wan kenobi and anakin skywalker and, and everything else built into it it's uh it's about a five or eight minute video it's worth watching all right so yeah we're at star wars eve um i'm probably going into a a very tight uh internet lockdown tomorrow to avoid getting any spoilers and uh and i'm ready to to see another star wars movie yeah as am i um you know i i think just talking about star wars and, and talking about how it all started in in the middle of things that that's that's really where we started was we started in the middle of the battles in the middle of the rebellion and tomorrow hopefully we're going to get some conclusions you know nine movies later yeah yeah um so i am excited about it and i'm excited to go see it with my husband yeah. so uh i love you i know all right good night y'all <laughs>